some of you might be new to the Christian faith. Some of you might be totally new to church and you feel a bit like a fish out of water here. And you're going to be hearing about the Christmas story maybe over the next few weeks for the first time. And that's awesome. And I just want to encourage you to ask questions. Don't feel like you need to pretend like you know what you think everyone else knows. Uh, have curiosity and ask questions like, why is this such a special time? Why do Christians make such a big deal of Christmas? You know, you might see, you know, a lot of flowers and candles and different decorations and all kinds of traditions that come with Christmas, but Christmas is about Jesus, plain and simple. It's about how God himself has come near to us and actually became a human um, and that's what people mean when they talk about incarnation. Wow, that's a long word. What they mean is that God took on flesh and he came to rescue us by becoming a baby conceived in Mary's womb. This Advent season, we are entering in with a focus on Mary. And if we can just get the, the slides changed, Bram, uh, with a series that focuses on the song that Mary sings in Luke chapter one, it's called the Magnificat. We've heard it already this morning. And what's happening in the Magnificat is she is responding to some incredible news that we're gonna get into today. Um, and, and so this morning we're actually gonna be look, looking at the events that lead up to Mary's song. What makes Mary sing this song. And so I invite you to pull out a Bible. We're gonna be getting into some more of the Bible this morning. And open your Bible to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. And if you don't know how to use one of these things and find your way in it, in the Blue Pew Bible, you can find our passage on page 830. Okay? And I do encourage you to have this out. We're going to be referring to the passage in the Bible uh, quite a bit this morning. So do have that out as we read then I'll pray, and then we're going to explore what it is God has to say to us through this this morning. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. 
And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail, or nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come upon us as we have heard these words which you first inspired Luke to write. And I pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds to hear the voice of Jesus, to hear your very voice speaking to us about who Jesus is and, and what it means uh, to follow him and what it means to have faith in him. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now, as I was preparing, the dominant question that stuck out in my mind comes from verse 38. Look at verse 38. Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. How on earth was Mary able to say that? How was she able to say these words? Let's think about her situation for a second. She was maybe 13, 14, 16 years old at most. A peasant teenage girl from Nowheresville, Galilee. We learn that she's engaged, which in that culture meant she was as good as married. In Jewish culture then, engagement lasted one year and it was legally binding, okay? So uh, it was basically like being married, except you didn't live with your uh, future spouse and you didn't do what married people usually do. But for that one year, if you were to have sexual contact with another person, it was considered to be adultery. And the only way you could break off an engagement was by a divorce. Mary was committed to this man named Joseph. And she lived in a super conservative culture. I mean, like, women had little to no rights. And the penalty for adultery was death. In Leviticus 20.10, this is in the, the Jewish law, it says that if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Yikes. Mary knows all of this. She's keenly aware of it. And this announcement comes to her, you're going to have a baby and Joseph is not the dad. Any way you slice it, the optics are bad, right? 
using the excuse, oh, God did it to me, that's not going to fly in that culture or in any culture. In fact, it would probably be a fast track to your death. Can you imagine what Mary is feeling? Her world is being turned upside down. Not only is this news impossible biologically, but it's going to ruin her socially and even with regard to her religious community, right? Her life as she saw it playing out is just like melting before her. I don't know many teenage girls who would be able to respond the way Mary responds, let alone myself. So how is it that Mary is able to say what she says in verse 38? I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And I think that we're meant to see the answer in a little word that comes toward the end of our passage. Look in verse 45. Look at what Elizabeth says to Mary. She says, blessed is she who has believed. Blessed is she who has believed. Mary believed. I want to say something about this word, believe. In English, we have two words to translate one word uh, in the New Testament Greek that we have in the Bible. In English, we have the word faith, and we have the word belief. In the Bible, it's actually just one Words. So in Luke 5, when a paralyzed man is lowered by his friends um, while Jesus is teaching, it says that Jesus saw their faith. And he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The word faith there is this Greek word, pistis. And that's the same word Elizabeth uses here. But it would be awkward to say, blessed is she who has faithed, Right? That would be strange to say in English. And so we have this other word, believe. Okay, two English words, one Greek word. Why am I telling you this? It's, you know, not even 10 a.m. Uh, the caffeine has barely started coursing through our brains and our minds. What is going on? I'm telling you this because when, in, when we hear the word belief and faith in English, they're two different things, Right? They have different shades of meaning, different nuances. When we hear the word believe or belief in English, what we mean is that someone thinks something is true, right? Or someone thinks that something exists. So to say that I believe in God usually in our culture means, yeah, I believe God exists, right? I hold a set of beliefs about God, right? This body of truth or doctrines, Right? That's what it, it means to believe. So if I take this rope and I say, yeah, I, I believe that this is a rope, right? I believe it exists. It's, it's taught. It's, uh, I can say things about this rope, uh, things that I hold to be true about it. It's white with some red lacing going through it. But if you say you have faith in something, it's different, isn't it? It goes further than belief. Faith means I don't just think this is a rope and I don't just have things to say about this rope. Um, faith in this rope would mean I am willing to go over the edge of a cliff and letting this rope hold my weight. That's the difference. 
It means that I'm actually going to trust my life with this rope, and I'm going to take a step over the edge. Faith actually means trust. Faith means commitment, that I trust that this rope isn't going to let me down and fall, right? So when we see the word believe in the Bible and in the New Testament, it's about way more than just a general belief in the existence of God. It's talking about faith. It's talking about trust and commitment. And faith is actually what we're going to be considering this morning as we begin our journey into Mary's song. Because at its heart, Mary's song is a song of faith. And Mary is actually put before us as a model of faith in the Christmas season. Not a model to be worshipped, but as a model to be looked to that can teach us a lesson and someone to be honored. So this morning as we explore this idea of of what does it mean to have faith in the Lord, we're going to see in Mary that faith seeks understanding. We're going to see that faith obeys. And we're going to see that faith is a response to God's faithfulness. Okay? You with me? All right. Faith seeks understanding. So sometimes we get the wrong idea. You know, in in church land, in the religious world, somehow it comes to us um, that asking questions is not a good thing, right? That, That can be cultural that comes at us, right? You might come from a culture that values authority so highly that even asking a question is interpreted as, you know, confronting or challenging that authority. But what we're seeing in Mary is that faith seeks understanding. Look at verse 34. What does Mary do? She asks a question. She asks a question. In other words, what Mary is showing us is that being a Christian doesn't mean you have to check your brain at the door, right? And and just believe. Notice my air quotes. We don't have to do that. A deep and resilient faith is intelligent and honest, right? We can wrestle with the questions that we have and wrestle with the questions that our culture is asking so that when we share good news, we're not sharing good news in a reductionistic or a simplified way, but we can share from a place of intelligent reflection and honesty. Later in Luke, Jesus is going to say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Loving God with our minds means resisting the false dichotomy between faith and understanding. Faith seeks understanding. That's what Mary does, right? In verse 34, she asks a question that I'm sure if you were in her situation, you would ask too, how is this going to be? since I am a virgin, right? Um, I know how things work in the area of reproduction and what you're saying, it, it doesn't work like that. How is this gonna happen? And Gabriel tells her, this is not business as usual. God's own spirit and power are going to bring about this new life in you. She asks a question. 
faith seeks understanding. And look at what happens later in the passage. She also gets a confirmation of everything that Gabriel tells her. There's actually something that she's given that can be verified, right? Look at verse 36. Gabriel says, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her own old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. Wow, that's something that can be verified. And so look at verse 39. What does she do? She goes. She hurries off to visit Mary, right? And <clears throat> this is before snail mail, email, and WhatsApp. So she's got to get on her two feet and go. And this was not an afternoon stroll. Here's Mary up in Galilee. It's about a three to four day journey, 80 to 100 miles to the hill country of Judea down here, right? This was a big trip, but she goes. She goes, and I think in part the reason she goes is because if she can find out if what Gabriel said about Elizabeth is true, then I can maybe trust that everything else he said is true as well. She seeks confirmation. And boy, does she get confirmation, <laughs> right? She gets there in verses 42 to 45, and God, God is ahead of her and moving in the midst of the situation. The Holy Spirit comes on Elizabeth and shows Elizabeth things that Elizabeth could not possibly know, right? She shows her uh, that this is the mother of her Lord, and Elizabeth just gushes all of this blessing about what is going on and totally affirms the promise and word that had come to Mary, right? And, and notice in verse 45, it's amazing. Um, the Holy Spirit, God through Elizabeth, affirms Mary's faith, right? It's not until the end of the passage that we hear that word, faith, or believe. And it's this confirmation of what's been in Mary all along in the text, that there is faith there. Faith seeks understanding. And I just want to encourage you this morning. Maybe you're um, at, at a place of considering questions of your faith. Um, maybe there's just so much unknown and you're hesitant. Like, you can come to God with your questions. You can come to the church with your questions. You can seek understanding. You can seek confirmation. That's good. What we also learn from Mary, though, is that faith obeys. Faith seeks understanding, right? It asks a question, but at a certain point, faith obeys. Even when we don't have it all figured out. There's a tension here. Because our questions can be honest and good as we're asking them, but we can also use questions as a bit of a decoy, right? That prevent us from actually ever needing to take that step of obedience, right? So um, a parent can ask their child to do their chores, right? 
And the child can then ask a slew of questions about the particularities. How do you want it done and all this and all of that? And it becomes clear that this is a tactic, right? That this child is actually trying to dodge the task of actually having to do it. Did you ever try that as a kid? I think I did once or twice. I don't think it worked out very well. Right? But we can do that with God too, just like question after question after question after question. It's like, okay, those those are valid questions, but are you avoiding something? Are you avoiding the necessity of obedience? In Mary's response in verse 38, when she says, I am the Lord's servant, shows that faith obeys. And there's an element of surrender there, right? There's a point at which she needs to surrender. I mean, a, a servant is by definition someone who obeys, not themselves, right? But, but another person, right? And a servant submits themselves. They surrender to the will of another person. What, what faith does in us, the, the way faith leads us to obedience is that we recognize our humble place before the living God of the universe and we surrender to his will. And here's what I want to say about faith that obeys, that faith and obedience always go together. Faith and obedience always go together. I mean, we're seeing this in Mary, right? Um, that, that there's faith in her, but she's also stepping out. She's making the journey. She's doing something. She's acting on her faith. And, and just simply in your life, if you want to know the condition of your faith, you can ask yourself the question, the question, do I obey? Do I obey? Faith and obedience always go together. And, and we can have a tendency to keep them apart and and we can even play them off one another sometimes in our like spiritual uh, religiosity, right? How often can we use faith as an excuse not to take an actual step of obedience, right? And here's how the thought goes. Um, God knows that I have faith in my heart. So I actually don't need to do the thing he, he's, he's calling me to do because it's about faith, right? It's about thinking, yeah, that's a good thing. But it doesn't stop there, but we can do that, right? We excuse ourselves from taking the step of obedience because we agree in the goodness of God's command. We agree with it in theory. It makes sense. Yes, if everyone lived like this, the world would be a much better place. And I believe that, and that's enough, right? But faith isn't having good intentions. Faith isn't having the right thoughts about something, Faith isn't um, even agreeing with something. Faith has to trust. It has to step out, right? And here's how we can subtly kind of dismiss obedience as well, is we can dismiss it on the charge of legalism, right? Like, oh, Jesus says to give to the poor. Um, But like, if I really insist on that, if I really step out in obeying that, I'm like totally falling into legalism here. But obedience is not legalism. Legalism is saying that if if you do this and don't do that, you'll be a good person and then God will accept you, right? It's, It's that kind of equation. 
Legalism is depending on rules to follow in order for God to accept you. And that's not what Christianity is about. And that's not what obedience is. Here's what obedience is. It's knowing that God has already accepted you because of the grace of Jesus. And so now in response to that and and by God's enabling power, you're going to obey the commands of your Lord and Savior. You see the difference? So we can't dismiss obedience and say it's legalism. It's not. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who obeyed Christ. He obeyed Jesus and it actually cost him his life in a Nazi concentration camp. And he wrote a book before his death called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he mounts an argument and he insists that obedience and faith always go together. And I just want to read a quote to you. In The Cost of Discipleship, he says, only he who, be- who believes is obedient and only he who is obedient believes. It's like a chicken and the egg situation. <laughs> Right? And, and what he argues is that we can't actually separate those two things. And he continues, if we are to believe, we must obey a concrete command. Without this preliminary step of obedience, our faith will only be pious humbug and lead us to the grace which is not costly. Now, Bonhoeffer is not talking about belief or faith that saves, right? The Bible says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, right? That, that is gospel foundation. That's the faith that justifies, and it's by grace. It's not by our works. But here he's talking about faith as a component of your life, right? Faith as a component of your spiritual life and its relationship to obedience. And the Bible holds faith and obedience together in that sense. Look at James 2, verses 17 and 18. This is like one of James's, uh, this is one of the drums he's beating in his epistle. He says, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds, right? Like trying to separate faith and obedience, And James says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. The Bible keeps them together. Bonhoeffer is right. Faith and obedience always go together. Think about this. It's like the relationship of fitness and exercise. Okay? Um, You want fitness as a quality of your life, right? You want... To a certain degree, all of us probably do, right? To be fit would be a good thing for my life. If you want to be fit, if you want to have that quality of life, you need to exercise. There's no way around it. There's no bypassing it. No one can do it for you, right? And you can believe that exercise is good. You can know all the benefits. You can have all the research. You can read what Blog TO is saying about the benefits of taking a run, But unless you actually step out and hit the gym, go for a walk, ride your bike, get on the Stairmaster, fitness is not going to increase in your life one bit, right? And in fact, what 
the sad reality is, is that if I don't get out and exercise, is fitness, is my fitness level just going to stay where it is? No, it's awful. It's going to go down. It's going to deteriorate. <laughs> but when you do step out and exercise, what happens? Fitness and exercise, they like mutually enforce one another. The more you exercise, the more fit you become. And the more fit you become, the more exercise becomes something you enjoy, not something that's drudgery, something that you actually are excited and love to do. It's the same with faith. If you want faith as a quality that defines your life, that faith needs to be exercised in obedience. There's no bypassing it. No one else can do it for you. So Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. Right? She puts herself in a place of obedience. Now that statement is also something that walks a fine line between passiveness and self-effort in the Christian life, okay? So she doesn't say, oh God, it, it's all about you and I'm nothing and nothing that I do is ever gonna make any difference so you're gonna have to do it. And on the other side, she doesn't say, okay, now I've got the promise and I'm gonna take it by the horns and I'm gonna make it happen, Right? She says, I am the Lord's servant. There's a tension inherent in true Christian spirituality. Mary sees that she's not totally in control. She's not totally responsible. She is a servant who has a master who is. It doesn't all fall on her to do by her own effort. But she also realizes that she has a part to play, right? She doesn't check out. She's a servant who has work to do. And Mary teaches us this important lesson that we all have a part to play, but we can't bring about God's purposes, whether that's in our own life or in the world, on our own effort. There's that tension. I love how Jerry Bridges puts it in his book, True Community. He says, as renewed human beings, we are called to use all the faculties of our beings, our minds, our affections, and our wills, in order to live out the Christian life, but to do so in a total dependence on the Holy Spirit's working. This is what Lavinia was saying. To do it in total dependence on the Holy Spirit's working in our minds, our affections, and our wills, empowering us with the power of the risen Christ. That is true Christian spirituality. We don't abdicate responsibility, but we don't think it all falls on us. We abide in Christ and we do it by the enabling of his power in spirit. So some practical advice to you. If you're someone in the room who, uh, you know, you think you have a lack of faith in your life, or, or you often are talking to people about, oh, I feel like I don't have much faith um, it, it's good to realize that and be honest about that with God. But don't just say, ah, oh, there's nothing I can do about it anyways. Because there's a practical step you can take. And it's this. T 
take the steps of obedience you know God is asking you to take. Just take the steps of obedience you know God is asking you to take. And there are many that are clear in the scriptures, right, in the Bible. So what if you don't feel faith? Is faith a feeling? No. It's not a feeling. And the moment that you step out in obedience, what you'll discover is that faith is waking up. That that obedience is creating an environment where faith is going to take shape in your life. Take the steps of obedience in total dependence on God's spirit. So faith obeys and being a servant of the Lord entails surrender. And, and here's a big part of Mary's story. Um, there's a point of surrender that we all need to come to when we realize that what God actually asks us to believe and have faith in is impossible. Right? So what's just been announced to Mary is a whole new category of un believable, right? A, a virgin giving birth. It's a contradiction, logically. The seemingly in, illegitimate child of a nobody teenager from a podunk country town is going to be God's king. Unbelievable. He's going to be great and be called the son of the most high that the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he's going to reign over Jacob's descendants forever and that his kingdom will never end. It's inconceivable. It's unthinkable. And let me just say, those words aren't even enough. It's impossible. And we actually cheapen the Christian story, or sorry, the Christmas story, Unless we realize that what happens to Mary is completely impossible. It is impossible. And Mary could have asked a whole lot more questions, right? As she sought understanding. But I think Mary came to the point very soon in her journey of faith where she realized that the angel wasn't asking her and wasn't announcing to her things that are probable, that the angel wasn't announcing things to her that are possible. I think she realizes so quickly that what Gabriel is announcing is impossible. And when God announces these impossible things, she seeks understanding, but she also submits, right? She realizes that what's happening is a mystery and that it's beyond explanation. And so she surrenders. And at a certain point in your spiritual journey, whether it's already happened or whether it's going to happen, it's gonna dawn on you that the invitation to follow Jesus and be a Christian is an invitation to believe the impossible. Virgins can't give birth. God can't become a human. A holy God does not belong in a dirty animal trough. A holy God does not touch unclean people. An all-powerful God does not die on a cross. Dead things and dead people do not come to life. People can't change. The world with all its injustices horrors and brokenness just can't be rescued 
Yet this is what God did, is doing, and will do. I mean, if you're stumped by the virgin birth, I mean, there's a lot more things that you should be wondering about that are just completely impossible and look ridiculous about Christianity. I mean, here we are. You probably came to church this morning and you entered uh, the building. And if you're new to church, uh, you don't necessarily see people singing, right, in culture. And you came to church and you saw a bunch of people singing to an invisible person. And you thought, what is going on? We are invited to believe the impossible in Christ and in faith. And so Elizabeth says, blessed, blessed are you, and I think we can expand it, blessed are those who have believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to them, right? In verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. He is the God of the impossible. So faith seeks understanding, faith obeys. And lastly, faith is responding to the deep faithfulness of God. As we consider Mary as a model of faith, I think think the most important thing we actually need to see and realize is is God at work in this story, right? (laughs) I mean, one of the most obvious things about this chapter is that God is on the move. God is on the move. He's fulfilling a promise he made to King David long ago in 2 Samuel 7 that one of David's line would be the king and his kingdom would last forever. God is on the move sending angels. The word angel just means messenger, so it's like this spiritual messenger. God is sending messages to people to get them moving, to to get them on board with his purposes. He's bestowing grace and favor. He, he's casting out fear. The work of the Holy Spirit is everywhere in Luke 1. Four times it's mentioned twice in our passage, the third person of the Trinity, God himself. The Spirit is on the move, bringing about new life in Mary. He's on the move, revealing this to Elizabeth. And look in verse 31. Look in verse 31. When Mary's given the promise that she is going to conceive and give birth to a son, notice there's a command. Again, she's going to obey, as we see later in the story. There's a command. She is to call his name Jesus. I want to pause there. Because those of us who have lived in church land for many, many years, we hear the name Jesus and we don't think twice about it. Jesus has a meaning. This name has a meaning. In Hebrew, it's pronounced Yeshua, and it means Yahweh saves. Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. That's God's personal name. Jesus means Yahweh saves. It means Yahweh to the rescue. That's what God is doing in the Christmas story. He's moving into the world in an entirely new way. As his son becomes human, he's moving to rescue humanity, and you and I are included in that. He's moving to rescue us from self, from sickness, from sin, and from death. This is what God is doing. Jesus, Yahweh, to the rescue. 
And what we see in the human characters is that they are always responding. Always responding to the movements and promptings of God. Because as much as we tend to focus on our own faith, the ironic thing is, is the thing that is going to most build our faith is actually if we focus on the God who is faithful. If we take our eyes off ourselves and we turn them to Jesus, and we turn them to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we see his faithful movements in the scriptures, in history, and in our lives, that's going to build our faith. Our faith is always responding to a God who is prior, who is already on the move, and he's bringing about his healing and redemptive purposes in us and in our world. Christmas is a great time to read books. It's a great time to read books with your kids. And there's one children's book that I particularly love. It's actually a series. It's the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this scene closer to the beginning of the book where there's four siblings, okay? There's, Su- there's Peter, there's Susan, uh, there's Edmund, and there's Lucy. And they're in this world where animals can talk. How cool would that be? And they're talking with Mr. Beaver. And there's been whisperings that something is about to change because Narnia has been held in the clutches of an evil witch who has made life there miserable. It's an unending winter and it's never Christmas. That would be awful. But there's some stirrings that Aslan, the lion, the true and rightful king is on the move. And this is what Mr. Beaver says to these four kids. He's whispering to them and he's really excited. He says, they say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels like it has enormous meaning, either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy had got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. I hope that this Advent season, as we hear the name of Jesus, Yahweh saves, Yahweh to the rescue, would we feel something jump up inside? As we're reminded that God is on the move, And may we respond to this God with ever-increasing faith and obedience.
Amen.